And today actually marks the last message in our series on the communion of the saints, the doctrine and practice of the church. And I was meditating yesterday and this morning about really what this series has meant for me and what has impacted me and what I hope to take away from it. And I'd like to share that with you just for a moment. I have no impressions that each and every single one of us by rote memory are going to recall every single theological concept or practical principle that we have discussed in a series of 15 messages over the past eight months. I do not have that impression, and neither should you. But if you are going to remember one thing from this series on the doctrine and practice of the church, I hope it is this. Jesus Christ loves his church, and so should we. Lord Jesus Christ loves his groom, his, the bridegroom loves his bride, and so should we. That's what I hope that you will take away from this series over the past eight months. On that note, if you would, please take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We'll be reading... Verses 34 and 35. John 13, 34 to 35. Lord Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, Lord, we are indebted to grace. We are debtors to mercy alone. Lord, we bask in the love of Jesus Christ for the church universal and for the church local. Help us to love the church as you have loved the church. Help us to love you first and foremost, and to love the bride of Christ, the church of Christ. So Lord, as we approach this equipping hour, may you equip us to do just that, to love the people of God, the household of God, and the body of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In an online article, author Michelle Van Slate recounts her own honest story of church hurt. She writes, slamming the telephone onto the receiver, I flung my words of frustration at my husband who sat in the family room watching the latest episode of Star Trek. I can't believe it, 
It's not fair. My throat closed over the rest of my sentence. I curled up on the couch and grabbed a box of tissues as tears spilled down my cheeks. I loved the church and had poured my heart into it. I hadn't expected to be hurt like this, especially in the church. But with three tissues wadded in my fists and my eyes red and puffy, there was no denying it. I had been burned by the church. In the weeks to follow, I found that my emotional and spiritual wounds were a lot like physical injuries. How I acted and reacted would determine whether the wounds became healed or became infected, whether I grew stronger or was left with an ugly scar. How, I wondered, could I recover with my faith intact? What should I do? This is a far too common experience for many Christians in the local church today. Church hurt exists. It is real and it is painful. This morning, in our last message on the communion of the saints, we will be discussing the topic of church hurt. And when I refer to church hurt, I refer to it broadly, generally, as an all-encompassing term. Church hurt refers to anything from clergy abuse to officer abuse to members of the church speaking unkindly to one another to members of the church speaking harmfully about one another. Anything that causes pain in the church qualifies as church hurt. Church hurt can be destructive or it can be sanctifying depending on how you respond to it. How you respond to disappointment in the church makes all the difference in your Christian walk, in your family, and in the household of God. This is exactly why in our series on the communion of the saints, it is an absolute necessity that we discuss this topic as our final message. And notice, the title of the message this morning is, When the Church Disappoints, Not If. But when? When the church disappoints. I feel burdened this morning to make church hurt a sanctifying experience for all of us and not a destructive experience. As Van Slate says, how I acted and reacted would determine whether the wounds healed or became infected, whether I grew stronger or was left with an ugly scar. This morning, I want to help wounds heal and not become infected. I want to help wounds heal rather than scar. Now, as a preface, I want to say that I understand this is a sensitive topic. This is a difficult topic, depending on your background or experience. Perhaps it is why this is such a neglected topic. Some have been deeply, deeply hurt in the church. Some have been wounded at the hands of ministers and members alike. Others, not so much. But we all understand the reality that as long as sin exists, hurt in the church will also exist. So this morning, 
I would like to approach church hurt from two different perspectives, two different angles. First, the pressures that contribute to church hurt, and secondly, the strategies to handle church hurt. Let's look at the pressures that contribute to church hurt. Anyone who has ever experienced disappointment in the church knows that this kind of pain is singularly unique. Church hurt carries with it the potential for deep wounds, for profound pain. Simply put, there is no hurt like church hurt. But why? Why is it so profound? Why is it so damaging? Why is it so painful? What makes it so? It is because there are unique pressures that occur with church hurt that do not occur in any other realm of life. There are distinct pressures that make it unique. This morning, let us examine and dissect these pressures one by one. Here are five common phrases that capture the unique spirit of disappointment in the church. And if you have ever experienced disappointment in the church, see if you can identify with any one of these phrases. First, but I've been living a godly Christian life. Now, sometimes in church, we suffer because we have hurt others. Sometimes we suffer because we have acted selfishly. Sometimes we suffer because we have acted egregiously. But other times, we suffer for seemingly no reason at all. In fact, we suffer in the midst of living a godly Christian life. And then you think to yourself, well, I've been doing what the Bible tells me to do. I've been seeking to love the brethren. I've been seeking to live selflessly. I've been seeking to put the interests of others before my own. And then you get burned. And then you get disappointed. And at that moment, you might even be tempted to think to yourself, what have I done to deserve this? I have been doing everything that the Bible calls me to do, and then this happened. What have I done to deserve this? I've been living a godly Christian life. Secondly, I did not expect this kind of hurt in the church. One of the main reasons why church hurt is so uniquely profound and so uniquely damaging is because we do not expect it. If there is one recurring theme in those who have suffered church hurt, it is this one. This was the last place I expected this. This was the one place that I expected to experience this kind of hurt. I expect that in the world. I expect that with my job. I expect that with my non-Christian family, but I do not expect that in the church. After all, this is the church. This is the one place out of every place in the world where we are called to love one another, where we are called to be kind to one another, to bear one another's burdens. So when you hear people speak about their disappointment, you can often hear a tone of surprise, a tone of shock, a sense of disillusionment. Sally Scamell says, a central reason for hurt in churches is that we expect church life to be safe and full of God's love 
grace, and mercy. We might acknowledge that little hurts could happen, but we certainly are not prepared for anything significant. In our workplace, we might expect trials and persecutions, but not in our church setting. As one pastor explained to me, we come to church as a refuge, expecting protection from the world. But church life is more like a workshop, a place to practice what we preach. Church is our opportunity to practice long-suffering, love, patience, and other fruits of the Holy Spirit when others hurt us. However, since we expected church to be a refuge, when a church hurt happens, our pain runs doubly deep. Indeed, Scamell is correct. Church hurt carries with it the potential for a doubly deep pain. It is doubly wounding, doubly hurtful. Now, what do we mean by that? Let me help us to seek to understand the inner workings of this dynamic. In church hurt, there's a deeper level of pain because of our expectations. Because you did not expect this hurt, you get hurt over the fact that you are hurt. You're depressed over the fact that you're depressed. You're upset over the fact that you're upset. In the world, you're just depressed over the initial offense, but you expected that. You expected that from the world. But in the church, it is doubly depressing. You are depressed over the initial hurt, but then you're depressed over the fact that you're depressed because it wasn't supposed to be this way. Tim Keller says, much of the depression we experience is depression over our depression. We're sad that we're sad. We're surprised that we're surprised. We're upset that we're upset. Part of being upset is the anger, the guilt, and the frustration we experience as we say, it's not supposed to be like this. Many Christians lose their peace and joy because they don't expect the attacks on peace and joy that are inevitable. And then it becomes a downward spiral. Hurt leads to pain. But then the surprise over the hurt begets more pain. And then you become upset over the fact that you're upset because you did not expect this. And that leads to more pain, which begets more pain, and it ends up being a downward spiral, all because of expectations. Thirdly, I came here voluntarily. One of the unique situations about the local church is that each and every single one of us is here voluntarily. Each member of the church joins the church voluntarily. In the world, you might get hurt by your family, but they're your family. You don't get to choose your family. You're born into your family. In the world, you might get hurt at your job, but it's your job. Not every one of us has the luxury of switching our profession whenever we want. But in the church, you came here voluntarily, of your own volition. You came here voluntarily to serve, to learn about Jesus. You came here to do good out of your own choice. And then this happened. It is the voluntary involvement in the church that makes church hurt even more difficult to swallow. Fourthly, I feel pressure to forgive. In the church, there's a certain expectation 
that we are to behave or to act or to treat each other in a specific way. Therefore, after a church hurt is sustained, what can be even more painful is the pressure to overlook the wrong, to forgive it. Even while you're still trying to process the hurt, you feel a certain kind of pressure, whether implicit or explicit, you feel a certain kind of pressure to forgive even before you are ready. After all, it's a church. Whether spoken or unspoken, there can be a minimizing of the hurt. You might even feel like you have to act like you don't hurt, to pretend like you don't hurt. And then you think to yourself, not only am I shocked and upset, now I'm being told I'm not even allowed to feel like this. The church can at times unwittingly and sometimes unknowingly add unnecessary pressure to church hurt. Fifthly, I feel alone in my suffering. After you've been hurt, loneliness can creep in. You may feel like you can't talk to anyone about what has happened. Maybe who has hurt you is a leader or someone influential or just another member of the church. And you don't want to gossip. You don't want to put somebody in a bad light. You don't want to impugn the gospel. And so you feel a certain pressure to stay silent. You brood in loneliness. You feel forced to suffer alone. You feel like you can't share your heart with anyone. I feel alone in my suffering. These are five unique pressures that make church hurt uniquely painful. But we must not stop here. Now that we have identified the pressures, we must see how we can biblically respond to each one of them. So let us move on to strategies to handle church hurt. First, adjust your expectations. Adjust your expectations. Expectations are everything. Whether we know it or not, expectations govern our lives. Expectations are the filter through which we read our experiences. They are the grid through which we interpret reality. C.S. Lewis says, if you're shown a hotel room you've been told is the honeymoon suite, your expectations will be high. If there's no plush carpet, spa, and champagne, you'll be disappointed. On the other hand, if you've been told before the door opens that it's a jail cell, you'll be delighted to find even modest comforts. It is the same room. It's the same exact room. But our impression of the room depends entirely upon our expectations. Nothing about the room has changed. Only our expectations have changed. Our world is shaped by expectations. Our reality is shaped by expectations. And our experience in the church is shaped by expectations. Expectations are everything. In his classic book on church community, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about what he calls a wish dream. A wish dream occurs when a Christian has a preconceived notion about how church life should be. We have our own ideas about what the church should look like, about how church should act, 
about what people should say. And our wish dream ends up dictating how we view life in the local church. Listen closely to Bonhoeffer. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. Only that fellowship, with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have a wish dream. Every single one of us has a wish dream. We all come to church every Sunday morning with a preconceived notion, a preconceived idea about what church should look like. Brothers and sisters, do you love your idea of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself? This is why Bonhoeffer says that it is an act of grace that our wish dreams are shattered. Because you know the reality about dreams? Not everyone has the same dream. Your dream is different from my dream, and it's different from someone else's dream. If our wish dreams are shattered, that prevents us from seeking to create the local church in our image. It prevents us from seeking to impose our expectations on the local church. This is why it is so important that our perception of the church is rooted not in our own personal wish dream, but it is rooted in the word of God. As Christians, we must allow two biblical realities to shape our expectations. The reality of the fall and the reality of redemption. The reality of sin and the reality of salvation. These two realities must govern our expectations. The reality of sin prevents us from having overly optimistic expectations. The reality of sin prevents us from having unrealistic expectations. It prevents us from being taken by surprise. If you are constantly being surprised that you are disappointed in the church, perhaps it is because you have forgotten that the church is made up of sinners saved by grace. Sinners. We are all sinners, each and every one of us. Therefore, suffering should not surprise us. Disappointment should not surprise us. We will all fall short. However, the reality of salvation prevents us from losing hope. 
The reality of salvation prevents us from becoming overly pessimistic in our expectations. The reality of redemption prevents us from despair. If you are constantly thinking that Christians are just hopeless people, they're ridiculously hopeless, they're beyond repair, you've got bitterness festering in your heart because this is just so hurtful I can't even believe it. Nothing is ever going to change. If that's your attitude, then you have forgotten that we are sinners saved by grace. You've forgotten the redemption of rea the reality of redemption, the hope of salvation, the hope of sanctification, the hope of glorification. If we keep these two realities in mind, the reality of sin and the reality of salvation, we will never be surprised by brokenness, and we will also never allow ourselves to wallow in brokenness. We will never be surprised by hurt, but we will also never abandon ourselves to hurt. If we allow these two biblical realities to shape our expectations, we will be both realistic and hopeful whenever we are disappointed in the church. Secondly, search yourself for spiritual pride. Matthew 7, 3-5 says, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Brethren, again, we must remember that we are all sinners saved by grace. We need to take a look in the mirror. We need to examine ourselves. We need to be introspective. So the simplest question to ask in any episode of Church Hurt is, am I in any way being prideful? in this whole situation? Am I in any way hurting others? Am I in any way seeking to glorify myself rather than to glorify God? Many times we have our own heart work to do. As one writer says, pursue the holiness you hope for in others. One of the most practical ways to do this is to pray, to take your hurt to God in prayer. If you are hurting, pray for yourself. Pray introspectively. Put your pride under the microscope of prayer. Bring your heart before the Lord. But you should also pray for your offender. And this is a difficult thing to do. This is a really difficult thing to do. But Jesus tells us, in Matthew 5.44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your persecutor. Pray for those who hurt you. Pray for your offender. However, I want to be quick to acknowledge that not every situation calls for personal repentance. There can be a situation in which you are entirely and completely blameless. There really is such a thing as a helpless victim. Remember the book of Job. This is why Job's friends were so foolish. In the book of Job, Job's three friends kept telling Job that he was suffering because he was doing something wrong. He was sinning. But that's the whole point of the first chapter of the book of Job. Job was suffering despite the fact that he was blameless. There really is such a thing as a helpless victim. 
And here's where I want to make myself abundantly clear. When I say we must search ourselves for spiritual pride, I do not mean we blame the victim. We must never blame the victim. In cases of church abuse or in cases of abuse in general, blaming the victim is among the most hurtful, most harmful things that you could possibly do. Thirdly, evaluate church hurt in a spirit of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love believes all things. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm supposed to blindly have faith in the one who hurt me? No. It means to give the benefit of the doubt. It means to assume the best of one another. To evaluate church hurt charitably. If someone really hurts you, Maybe it wasn't their intention to hurt you. Maybe they weren't acting intentionally malicious. In this case, 1 Peter 5.8 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. This means if it's a small thing, if it's something that you can overlook in a spirit of graciousness, if it's clearly unintentional, then let love cover a multitude of sins. Let love reign. Let love rule. On the other hand, sometimes church hurt is purposeful. There are cases in which hurt is clearly malicious. Sometimes there is abuse involved. In cases of abuse, you cannot tell the abused person, oh, just let love cover a multitude of sins. I think you should just forgive and forget. Let's move on and act as if it never happened. No. If there is abuse happening, you need to involve the proper authorities. It is right to involve the proper authorities. If there's physical or sexual abuse, you need to call the police. You need to take it to the police. If it involves children, you need to involve child protective services. You need to involve the elders. You need to bring in oversight. If crimes are committed, we need to deal with them justly. Now in this discussion of the importance of love and dealing with church hurt, I would like to caution against another extreme to which we might be tempted. And this is the extreme of, well, I've been hurt in the church, so I'm just not going to love anymore. I've been hurt in the church. I made myself vulnerable, so I'm just not going to make myself vulnerable anymore. I've been hurt in the church, so I'm just going to close myself off from everybody and then I won't get hurt anymore. I will not allow myself to love anymore. Well, that is an alternative. But for the true Christian, for the true disciple of Jesus Christ, that is an unacceptable alternative. How do I know that's unacceptable? Because Jesus himself told us that that is an unacceptable alternative. True disciples are marked by love. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Without love, we are nothing. True disciples are marked by love. True followers of Jesus Christ love one another. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, in The Four Loves, says this, To love at all 
is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. If you are committed to the true Christian life of love, then you will be vulnerable. If you are committed to the true life of Christ-like love, it is a life of risk. The life of love is a risky life. But this is the way of Jesus, is it not? Jesus left the ultimate security with his Father in heaven, and he came to be vulnerable, vulnerable to the point of death. Jesus came to love us, and he came willing to be hurt, willing to be killed. This is the way of Jesus. And Jesus wants us to do the same, to be like him in the way that we love one another. Love one another even as I have loved you. Even as I have made myself vulnerable in loving you, you, my disciples, make yourselves vulnerable in loving one another. The life of godliness is the life of vulnerability. The life of godliness is the life of risk. But there is no other way for the true disciple of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, seek reconciliation. Remember, with the little things, if you can just overlook them, then do just that. Let love cover a multitude of sins. But if the offense is so deep that it threatens your relationship, that it threatens to disrupt your relationship, or if it becomes a pattern of sin, then Jesus tells us we must go to that person. Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If you have a hard time overlooking the offense, then Jesus says, go to that person. If it's lingering, go to that person. If you're having a hard time coming to church, go to that person. If you can't get over it, go to that person. We must seek reconciliation. Now on this note, let me for a moment speak to those of us who come alongside our suffering brothers and sisters in the church. Allow me to point out a subtle yet critical distinction. We must make a distinction when we come alongside people who are hurting. We must make a distinction that we should encourage them to forgive but we should never pressure them to forgive. There is a difference. There is a difference between encouraging someone to forgive and pressuring someone to forgive. What is the difference? Well, when we encourage someone to forgive, we speak the truth in love. We remind them that they ought to forgive as Christ has forgiven them. We are a stronghold for what is right. 
I want to be clear that we should not allow bitterness to fester in our hearts. So yes, we do encourage other people to forgive, but when we do so, we do so with the spirit of humility. We do so with a certain gentleness. We do it with a sensitivity to their hurt, an earnest plea. We come alongside those who are suffering. We suffer with those who suffer. We bear their burdens. We weep with those who weep. And we do so with the spirit of meekness. So we encourage them to forgive. But we don't expect them to forgive right then and there. No. We realize that we need to wait on the Lord. We need to wait on the Lord to change that person's heart. That is the spirit of humility. We need to realize that the Holy Spirit is working in that person's life. We need to realize that God is dealing with each and every one of us in his own way, in his own time. We wait on the Lord in the spirit of humility. We entrust that person to the Lord. But we must never pressure them to forgive. We must never coerce them to forgive or guilt trip them to forgive, or force them to forgive. So when someone is suffering in the church, you must never go to them and say, well, you just need to forgive and forget and move on. Hasn't it been long enough? I mean, we've been going through this over and over and over again. You just need to let go of this. Or perhaps it's something more subtle. Well, if you're really spiritual, then you would forgive. You know, the mature thing to do is just to forgive. What you're implying is, if they're not quick to forgive, then they're just not a really good Christian. If they're not quick to forgive, then they must not be a very mature Christian. That's pressuring. That is compounding the hurt. That is adding unnecessary guilt to the hurt. That kind of pressure is potentially very damaging to someone who is hurting. Now these suffering saints are not only dealing with the original hurt, they're now dealing with the added pressure to forgive. So yes, as Christians, we are all called to forgive, each and every one of us. But we must always remember that everyone's timing is different. Your timing is different from mine. God's timing is different from ours. We so often want to do it our way, right here, right now. Let's just get this done with and over with. But healing takes time. Grieving takes time. Building trust takes time. We need to respect their timing and we need to respect God's timing. We need to entrust them to the Lord. We need to entrust that God is dealing with them in his own way, in his own time. And we need to humbly submit ourselves to wait on the Lord. Fifthly, know your enemy. Know your enemy. Church hurt forces us to realize who our true enemy is. Our true enemy is not the church. It is not the Christian. It is not God. Our true enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now take our common enemy, Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan is prowling around trying to devour us. We need to open our eyes to that. Satan is seeking to sift you like wheat. Satan knows, John 10, 28, he knows that he cannot pluck you out of the hand of God. Satan knows that he cannot cause true believers to lose their salvation. So he does the next best thing. 
He wants to make your life miserable. He wants to magnify hurts in your mind. He wants you to be isolated from the church. He wants you to stop going to church. He wants you to gossip and be divisive. He wants you to become bitter. He wants you to think the worst of others and the worst of God. He wants you to doubt God's love. So whenever we experience church hurt, as hard as this may be, we need to objectively stand back and ask ourselves, what is Satan trying to do here? What is Satan trying to do to me? What is Satan trying to do to this church? How is Satan trying to harm me? 1 Peter 5.9 says, resist the enemy. Ephesians 6.11 reminds us to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Brothers and sisters, do not allow the devil to take advantage of your hurting heart. Know your enemy. Sixthly, discern the difference between accountability and gossip. Sometimes we have this idea in cases of church hurt that I can't tell anyone. I must keep my mouth shut. Everyone has to stay silent. We cannot talk about problems in the church. In cases of clergy abuse, and this is well documented, secrecy is a commonly used tactic. The abusers will tell their victims, well, you must not tell anyone about this. You need to protect us. We are public figures, and you don't want to bring scorn on Christ's church, so you need to protect us, and you can't tell anyone. You don't want to gossip, do you? One of the major problems with church hurt is that people suffer in silence. People who are truly hurting, truly needing help, they are brooding in loneliness. Their hurt is often shrouded and cloaked in secrecy. On the one hand, yes, you do not want to gossip. You do not want to be divisive. You do not want to air dirty laundry in an ungodly fashion. But there is no rule in the Bible that says when you are hurt in church, you cannot tell a soul. There's no rule like that. When you're hurt in church, you can't tell anyone. You must keep it to yourself. There's no rule like that. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 27, 9 says, A man's counsel is sweet to his friend. When you are suffering, Scripture advocates friendship and accountability. The difference is in your motivation. In gossip, you are seeking to harm another person, or you are seeking to feed your own pride. But gossip is different from seeking friendship and accountability. Maybe what you really need if you're really hurting is someone to help you through your hurt. Seek a friend. Seek them to gain counsel. Seek them for comfort. Seek them to gain perspective. Now, of course, it would be wise to keep the circle small, perhaps to one or two trusted friends. But the point is, when you are suffering in church, don't suffer alone. Don't suffer alone alone. The body of Christ is here for you. We want to be here for you. Seventh and last, remember the sovereign headship of Christ. Remember the sovereign headship of Christ. Unfortunately, when we sustain church hurt, 
Sometimes the first aspect of our theology that we forfeit is the sovereignty of God. Instead of thinking like Christians, we begin to think like deists. A deist is someone who believes that God created the world and then walked away. God created the world, wound the watch of humanity, and then walked away and left humanity on its own. A deist believes that God has no active role in the world today. Now, we would never say this, but when we suffer church hurt, sometimes we act like deists. We think to ourselves, well, we know Christ died for the church 2,000 years ago, but where is he now? Christ did a great thing for the church at Calvary, but church is what we do. Jesus did a great thing for us there right at the beginning, but now he is nowhere to be found. We act as if Christ has lost control over the church that Christ has left the church, that Christ has walked away from the church. We think like deists. Brothers and sisters, nothing could be farther from the truth. Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Christ is the one building his church. Christ is in control over his church. Christ is exercising authority over every single last detail that happens in his church. And brothers and sisters, this means that Christ is sovereign over your church hurt. In your church hurt, Christ is still there. Christ is still in control. Christ is building his church. Brothers and sisters, in your church hurt, Christ is sanctifying you. Christ is sanctifying his church. He has not forgotten you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Disappointment has a way of practically testing our theology of the sovereignty of Christ. When we suffer church hurt, we are faced with a choice. Will we think like a Christian or will we think like deists? Is Jesus in control of his church or is he not? Is Jesus building his church or is he not? James Bannerman says, Jesus Christ is not only the founder of the Christian church, he is also the ruler and administrator of it in such a way that he keeps in his own hand all the power and authority and grace that belong to that society. He is ever present directly with his own hand to exercise that power, to minister that authority, to dispense that grace. He is the head of the church in this sense, that the church is not only indebted to him for its existence at first, but for its life and well-being ever since. Jesus has not left his church. So brethren, remember, when the church disappoints, not if, but when. When the church disappoints, remember, Christ is still on his throne. Christ is still in control. Christ is still sovereign. Men may disappoint, but Christ never disappoints. Men may fail, but Christ never fails. Oh, brethren, hope in Christ. Trust in Christ. He is the foundation of the church. He is the head of the body. 
He is the solid rock of the communion of the saints. Let this be the song of our lips and the confidence of our hearts. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let us pray. Oh Lord Jesus, you are our solid rock. You are our foundation. You are our refuge. You are a bulwark never failing. You are our tower of strength. You are our comforter, our keeper. Lord, let us come to you with all of our hurts. Let us remember that you are sovereign over your church and over every single church hurt. Thank you for loving us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.